Our scripture readings today come from Genesis and from Romans, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Romans 1, verses 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this message is entitled God's Holy Order and Same-Sex Mirage. And the reason why I say same-sex mirage is going to be apparent throughout the message, um, but I don't want to let that throw you. I'm not going to justify my use of the term yet, but I will in just a few minutes, so don't get hung up on that. Uh, This message is somewhat in two parts. The first part is God's holy order, which was our first reading from today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and... The earth was formless and void, right? And he decided how his created order would work. God bless Samuel right now. The boy is reckless. He'll be fine, hopefully. And he decided how that order would be working. He, he established an order, and we see that not only through the express words of Genesis 1, but their complete uh, reference in the rest of the scripture we're going to see Jesus quoting from that passage as informing a pattern of life, informing a way of structuring society and all, all of human life. And then the next aspect is going to be a review of the recent events in our country. Now, before I get started on this, I just want to set a context. I'm not calling for you to call your congressman. That is too little and too late. If you were ever hoping to get just a better president or a better congressman or a better mayor, that is not enough. Those certainly can be good things, but they can't be good things if you're imposing a morality top-down. It won't hold, as we see over and over again. So before we even get started addressing the evil that is taking place in our culture today, it must be understood that this is not a call for political action, but rather for heart action, for the action of repentance. And so the message being in two parts, we're actually going to cover nine subtopics. I decided to hold it off and not make it 10 subtopics in case something else is more important one day that I have to put 10 points into. We're going to talk about nine points. The first three are God's holy order. We're going to look at the creation order. We're going to look, as I mentioned, at Jesus's affirmation of what we just read in Genesis 1 as informing a pattern of living, informing a way of relating husbands and wives. And then finally, we're going to look at God's law in Leviticus 18 very briefly. We're going to see how God has instituted an order for society, and then we're going to turn our attention to what has happened in our country in the last two weeks. We're going to look at the defiant rebellion that the Supreme Court has instituted and the President of the United States gives hearty approval to. You've heard that phrase before today. We're going to look at the strategies and tactics of what I believe to be an overarching homosexual agenda or narrative, if you wish to use a a postmodern term, 
uh, uh, the narrative being their their way of thinking, their ideology, and that is going to be where I justify my use of the term same-sex mirage, or mostly today I'll probably refer to it as so-called same-sex marriage. I'm going to explain why I think it's wise for you and for us as a church to consistently refuse to seed the words marriage to something that is not a marriage. We're going to look at the furthering of temptation. Uh, After we look at the strategies and tactics of the nature of the battle, because the battle is over people's hearts and minds, we don't war against flesh and blood, we're not calling for political action, we're calling for deep repentance on the heart level, and we're calling for the church to have a unified message so we don't waffle. We have two great sins that we need delivered of in the church. One is our homophobia, which is an unnatural, unrighteous fear, hatred, and dismissal of those who are icky, because we see homosexual being such a perversion of God's order, but yet we tolerate when our children and when our, when our dating relationships spiral into all forms of fornication and, and immorality, and yet we, we turn a blind eye to those things. At the same time, making that objection does not dismiss a need for a clear, articulated, consistent response. So the other great sin that we have need of repentance of is not just homophobia, but also spinelessness, which refuses to warn people who are running headlong into judgment about where they're going. It's actually worse than hatred. It's apathy, in my mind, in this context, is worse than an act of hatred. Because you're at least, with with active hatred, people at least, you know, second-guess their decisions. And so our apathy is, is something we need to repent of, both our homophobia and our apathy. And so we're going to look at these four areas, I believe, five, five areas, if you want to count it that way, that society, society will be negatively impacted. And before we get lost in the society, that is not the end goal of this message. The end goal is not changing the world and leaving the world as such but rather bringing the kingdom of God humbly and with authority to impact people's lives for the better, to rescue people who are hurting, broken, and looking for satisfaction in everything other than Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at adoption and education as it relates to this issue. We're going to look at the pressures coming against churches and ministers. And I want to give you a context for these things, not for you to call your congressman again, but for you to anchor your heart in the covenant faithfulness of Jesus Christ and also the, the history that we see Yahweh taking Israel through, establishing promises and keeping them. And I want you to, to know about what, should, uh, what you should be expecting to happen in the future, not so that you get fearful, not so that you cede more ground to paganism or, or anything like that, but so that you understand that when Jesus Christ calls you to be a disciple, he tells you to count the cost. And you need to be willing to lose everything for the sake of the gospel, whether it's this issue or any other issue. It just happens to be highlighting something at the moment that I think is helpful. And then finally, we're going to look at the loving witness that we must establish to people who suffer under same-sex attraction, people who suffer under every form of sin and deviancy other than that issue as well. And the hope that we have, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He didn't get confused by this decision. He doesn't approve of it, but it's not as if he was caught off guard. I want to plainly state that just because America is currently moving even further from Christ 
than she had already moved in previous generations doesn't mean that Christ will be defeated worldwide. The gospel has been and will continue always to advance in the hearts and minds of people and the kingdoms of this world will have become the kingdoms of our Lord and our Christ when he returns, not after he returns. And so we're, we're looking here at a, at a situation that the gospel says the kingdom and the government will be on Jesus Christ. It doesn't necessarily say America will be part of that. And so I want to give a clear message and a clear warning that there are godly established laws by which you cannot break them, but rather they break you. There are immutable principles by which God has set up image bearers to operate. And so warring against them, it, the scripture at one point says it's hard to kick against the goads. And we don't really think about it. We hear goads. Is that like a reference to goats? No, it's a goad is something that's a prod. And when, when you would establish boundaries or fences, they would put these little spikes. It's hard to kick up against the spikes because your shins get broken and bloody. It's hard to kick against God's law. It's much better to acknowledge him as God and to honor him as such which is the chief sin in Romans 1, which they did not do. And so we're going to look at God's holy order and this issue of same-sex mirage or so-called same-sex marriage. And with that in mind, you need to be preparing yourself to think through these things from a biblical perspective. So let's start really quickly at the beginning. We start before the beginning of this book with an understanding of God that's mediated throughout the whole book as an eternal God. Genesis 1-1 does not assert, it does not argue God's existence, it asserts God's existence. Genesis 1, we see God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit eternally existing in fellowship and harmony, community and love. That love so overflowed that they decided and wished and desired to show their glory in a created realm by which creatures would bear their image and give glory to him. God's ultimate desire is love, that there would be human beings who bear his image that would receive love, and also that he would be glorified. And so God has this wonderful plan for creation. He invests it day by day over six days with more meaning, order, structure. Remember, the earth is formless and void, and then what does he do? He separates the water from the land. He separates the darkness from the night. He then creates creatures who represent him, but not in an authoritative way such as they are him, but rather that they tell plainly the wonders of the particular birds and the creatures, the reptiles, the things that are creepy. Those things give glory to God because of his handiwork, because of how amazing they are. And we're going to look at, when we get to uh, talk about Paul's uh, argument in Romans 1 as an inversion of the created order. God creates them and gives them charge, that is Adam and Eve, over a special garden which he established. Not only did God create the world, but he also created a special environment, Adam and Eve's house, if you will. And that over that realm, over that garden, Adam and Eve were to tend it. He told Adam to take care of the garden. Adam is given a charge to, in Genesis 2 to name the animals, to, to call them according to their, to their order, their name, their purpose. And so Adam begins to do this, and then he realizes there's no helpmate for him. And so God creates out of Adam's rib, he puts Adam in a dark, uh, in a dark sleep or a deep sleep, and then creates a woman fashioned out of Adam. 
Why is it special to understand where the woman came from? Because they are two halves of one whole humanity. Now, single people, I am not telling you that you are somehow in sin before you get married or that you can't be a whole person. The point is not for your individual satisfaction. The point here is that these two, this male and female distinction, together would image forth a more complete representation of the image of God. We're going to see that very quickly here. Verse 26, God said, let us make man. There's a plural pronoun there, let us. God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are having counsel together. And in the Godhead, they decide to invest men, man and woman, with an image of themselves. It says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Then he gives them dominion over everything. He gives them dominion over the created realm and the creatures in that realm. And then verse 27, so God created man in his image, listen closely, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this idea here is humanity is invested with a meaning, with a purpose, with an order. It's male and it's female. This is God establishing the foundation for all of creation. When you build a house, It's commonly understood that you spend most of your time at first just digging. You're not calling designers. You're not laying two by fours out. You're not putting up wallpaper. You're digging out a foundation. And before any other institution is recorded in scripture, God records the special calling of imaging forth himself that has been invested in male and female in a distinction, in a difference between the two. Our culture wars against this idea, both with the idea of equality, that men and women are the exact same and no different. But clearly, the scripture says that women have a purpose. They are unique. Men are, have a purpose. They are unique. They are not the same. And so this is the beginning of God's created order. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Well, how are they to be fruitful? They're to be fruitful through the bearing of children, which only can happen in a male and female distinguished relationship, a distinction and a difference. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing. Notice that pattern, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every creeping thing. That's the end summary of God's created order by which he establishes men to rule over these things and to worship him as such, as God. God's created the entire universe, structuring it day by day, coming to a culmination in human beings. Human beings are not an afterthought. They are the end goal of the created order, that people would bear his image. He commanded them to live harmoniously, multiplying and ruling over the other created things. The man and wife pair is the foundation of all human society. And this is reiterated in the very next chapter, which is a retelling or a different perspective on the same events in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Who's writing this? Moses is writing Genesis. And he's saying as a result of what has just happened in Genesis 2, in this distinguished difference where Adam could not find a helper, God decides to create a helper for him, a distinguished woman, a distinguished creature, and then he gives a summary. Moses gives a summary of the implications of what has just happened. This is not part of the created events. That is, God did not declare this, but rather Moses, by the Holy Spirit, is inferring that this is a pattern for 
all of humanity. It's a, it's a way to understand the structure and the pattern by which we will grow. Now, notice the generational aspect that is in these words. It's easy to miss if you don't read carefully. Therefore, a man shall leave who? His father and his mother. A man and a wife created order, blessed, ordained by God for the bearing of children. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a union by which two things are now one thing. Now, I don't know about you. I have never been able to make two things into one thing. I've seen some amazing magicians who can do some amazing things, but it's still an illusion. You know, have you ever seen the little with the cups? They're moving the cups and there's a ball or an acorn underneath it. And they're doing this sleight of hand. Well, that doesn't happen in a marriage. It's not a metaphor. It's not an illusion. It is a spiritual reality by which God joins together a man and a woman. And they are bonded together in such a way as they are no longer two, but one. This is not something that humans can do. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 25. This is holy, righteous, and good. This is the foundation for all understanding of human relationships, sexuality, culture, society. Everything that takes place in our world today comes from this pattern. And it is so important that God has decided beforehand that he would give his son a wife that is the bride of Christ, and that although that relationship we do not understand to be in terms of sexual union, it is still a true union. And all union that we have between male and female here actually is a lesser reality than the importance of the reality of Christ to the bride. That's why he died for her. And so to, to abolish marriage, to seed marriage as an idea up to any other definition is to ignore God's holy order, and it is also to slight Christ in such a way as to say what you did was unimportant or not distinguished or not unique and special, never to be imitated or repeated. That's the order by which all the foundation, all the foundation of society rests on this order, acknowledging God as such. Of course, you can't have society built on marriage alone without acknowledging who God is. That's not the point of that, that chapter. So Christ affirms this order in his public ministry. The Pharisees ask him this question, and Jesus provides no distinguishing between his disciples and Israel or Israel and the rest of the world. The, the question that they ask is not what is lawful for us, the Israelites versus them. They just say what is lawful. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus answers the Pharisees, and they're trying to trap him. He answers them by inferring from God's word. This is why we do that. We don't infer from God's word because we think it's a good idea. We infer from God's word because it's the pattern of all the prophets, Jesus Christ, and the apostles. Verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Where is he quoting from? Genesis 2. Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let man not separate. God joins together man and woman. A holy union that's righteous and good. Jesus appeals to God's created order as having authority to inform how we think about the issue of marriage. Christ says that the binary creation of man, as in man and woman, binary means twofold, one, two. Binary creation of man informs how many man, uh, wives a man should take. He, they're asking a question, should man 
uh, divorce his wife and take another. Let's say man, uh, a man marries a woman and she is barren. Is it right for him to dismiss her and to take another wife so that he would ha- raise up heirs to his, to his family line? Absolutely not. Jesus Christ said, because of your unrepentance and your hardness of heart, Moses for a time has granted you the ability to divorce your wives. But it wasn't so in the beginning. That's quoted here after this place. He made them male and female, not male and male. He didn't make them female and female, nor did he make them male and female and female and female. This isn't a multiplication of a, of a harem. God established man and woman. Jesus then goes on to say, if you d- divorce your wife for any other reason other than adultery, you're committing, uh, 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 and then marry another, you're committing adultery. It's interesting to me that right after this, in that chapter, we don't have time to go to it, the children are brought to Jesus Christ in order for him to bless them. He's just reinstituted and reinforced the nature of marriage as a male and female distinction by which God reinforces his judgment against Israel in Malachi, accusing the people of Israel in Malachi for hating their wives by divorcing them and neglecting them. The context is absolutely clear that honoring and upholding God's order brings prosperity, blessing, and the next generation. Because God is a God of love, he desires that humans would know what is right and wrong. That's part of Jesus's mission, is to reinforce the value and importance of God's order and his law. And so we're going to turn our attention to that really quickly. God giving his law is a means of grace. Many people have confused the understanding of the New Testament as the law not having the ability to save And so they mistakenly believe that the law has no ability to inform or to help protect. But the entire point of the new covenant in the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel is that God would take his law and he would move it from tablets of stone, referring to the Ten Commandments, and transfer it and write it upon a new heart. He would remove a heart of stone. He would remove a calloused and dead thing out of people and that he would put in a new heart and then write his law. But That being said, it does not mean that those who do not partake of the new covenant are free to do without God's law. And we're going to see why the, why the scripture plainly says that. In his law, he clearly commands Israel to rule their families in sexuality according to his law in Leviticus 18. Many people commonly object saying Jesus never said anything about sexuality uh, concerning homosexuality. And that is true. Jesus didn't use the word homosexuality, but he clearly is referencing loving your neighbor, which comes in Leviticus uh, 19. And guess where Leviticus 19 is right after? Leviticus 18, the pornea code, the code of sexual immorality, which he also just referred to in his upholding of marriage of why it's improper to join between uh, more than one male and female. Leviticus 18, 21, and 22. Notice the order. I think, it's, I think it's no coincidence that God has ordered it such that these two ideas would go hand in hand. God tells, uh, Yahweh tells Israel, Leviticus 18, 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your, your God, for I am the Lord. God is asserting to Israel that he decides what they do with their children. Moloch was this god, and I, I'm, I'm 
it, it, it breaks my heart to even have to tell you what they used to do. Moloch was a god made out of either bronze or iron or metal. And what they would do is they would take these coals from a fire and they would put the coals on the hands of this god, this idol that they had made, which is no god at all. And they, these hands would become hot. And then they would take their children and they would place them into these hands that are burning hot so as to offer them up like an offering to this god. That's what the nations did in the land before God drove them out. And people think this is some idea of a genocide. No, it's the ending of evil against children. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. There is no reason why, in my mind, these two ideas are different. Lying with men is the same thing as killing the next generation. Absolutely. And so God gives these laws not to anyone, not to just a, a select few, but a people that he's calling to himself. But guess what? Brothers and sisters, it's wrong to think that the law does not apply to other nations. Watch this closely over these next few verses. Some may object saying it only applies to Israel, but this very chapter teaches that these laws and revelations, these statutes, ordinances, precepts, case laws are given to all the nations. Do not make for yourselves unclean by any of these things. Why does he tell them that? Because of the very next phrase, for by all these, by doing all these things, which I'm telling you not to do, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean such that I punished its iniquity and expelled the nations or spewed them out. God caused the land to vomit out the Canaanites because of these evil things that they did. God is judging the previous inhabitants of the promised land because they violated the precepts and laws. That is why it is clear that God's giving of his law is a grace. It's a grace because we know what's right from wrong definitively, and we have a standard that we can appeal to that's not my opinion versus your opinion. Because my opinion versus your opinion will always lead to circumstances, situations in which some cultures can do things that they justify themselves. The reason why Nazi Germany happened was because they removed themselves from Christianity. They began to preach against homosexuals in such a way as to think that they were worthy of death and that they should kill not only homosexuals, but Jews, not only Jews, but those who are blind, deaf, lame, invalid, old. And that is why they began to kill so many people is because they appealed to a standard that was not God's standard, but rather their own. Acknowledging these, acknowledging these things is not calling for you or me to establish a political hierarchy by which we bring about this law, although I think that might be a better situation for society than a law that is just so arbitrary. However, it does tell us what God's opinion about these actions are. And Paul in, Revel in Romans 1, which we read today, says after the cross, after the ascension, that those who do such things are worthy of death. Now, that doesn't mean we're getting guns and we're going after people, but it does mean that God is clear, this is what is worthy of death. And so for us, when we are after the cross, post-ascension, with a message of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to God, we must heed his warnings. God continues in this same very chapter, verse 26, but you shall keep my statutes and rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger. Now, look, the law is not just for Israel or those who self-identify as Jews. The law is 
for all of those who live in this nation, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so the land became unclean. God reiterates the same point he just made, which by which we know that he is very sure in his intention to communicate this. Verse 28, lest the land vomit you out. Israel is not special. She can't break these laws and just get away with it as it vomited out the nation that was before you. It's very clear that these laws should not be understood as to apply only to Israel, but they are eternal precepts, eternal principles, which are immutable and unchangeable. Understanding God's holy order, we must now turn our attention to what has happened in our country in the last two, uh, two weeks. Before we get there, just to make it very clear, verse 29, for everyone who does these any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among who? Not Israel, among their people. This is something that happens in every culture, in every land. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominational, abominable customs that were practiced before you and never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. He seals it with his identity, his authority to speak on how we order our lives, our sexuality, our passion, our desire to structure life or live our lives according to our own rule or, or his rule. He seals it with, I am the Lord your God. He seals it with himself, his revelation as a loving God, a God who establishes the created order for an intended purpose to bless it so that men would fill the earth and image forth him, giving glory to him and also receiving love from him. So, Let's look at what's happened. Whereas God's law teaches that homosexual relations are an abomination, the Supreme Court in a decision, I think it's Hodges is the versus, Obergefell versus Hodges, I think it's Hodges, ruled that the homosexual couples in this country have a fundamental right to be, to, to be bestowed the same title and essence of marriage. Now, clearly, we have to understand what do they mean by a right. Is that true? Right is a very important word. And there's a concept in jurisprudence or, or legal theory by which you understand the meaning of a term based on how it's used in all the language and the laws and the writings of that body of work that you're talking about. When you look for a meaning of a word in the Bible, guess what? You can't just go and look up a dictionary that's not related to the Bible in any way, and hope to get a reliable translation. The word right in American legal theory has a connection to somewhere and something. I believe, if you remember history, we celebrated the signing of this document yesterday. I watched one of those terrible, you know, YouTube, you, sometimes you should just avoid it. I watched, I watched this thing on YouTube yesterday where this guy's interviewing people at the beach on July 4th, and he's He's asking them, what are we celebrating today? <laughs> and who did we gain our independence from? <laughs> and uh, some people said Canada. <laughs> some people said Cuba. Some people said that the signing of the Declaration of Independence happened in 1964 or 1984. The beginning idea of the word right in American legal theory and jurisprudence is the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths, a set of truths which they are about to articulate, that all men are created equal. Where did they get that idea? I thought we were just protoplasm, material in motion, time and chance, acting on matter. No. 
they have a common understanding of acknowledging a creator, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That means that human beings innate to themselves, they are invested with rights. That is, ideas that they have an obligation to or a, uh, a, a purpose, a sense of uh, claim to things that cannot be removed from them. That, that's what it means for those rights to be unalienable. They can't be removed from someone. And those come from who? A creator. Understood rightly, we hear the Supreme Court arguing that the homosexual right to marry is somehow in, endowed by their creator, which is completely ridiculous when you look at the clear expressed teachings of Scripture. They have a different God in mind. Make no uh, uh, mistake about it, there is a different God operating here than the God of Scripture. It may be a God of modern popular religion. It may be some sort of God among all the gods being equal and each religion kind of su supplying a little essence of each God or, or the one God, but it certainly is not the God of Scripture. It is not Yahweh, and it is certainly not his son, Jesus Christ. This is the God which is popularly understood in our culture today. And that is why we must understand what they are attempting to do. Now, the reason I say attempting to do is that no man can issue a decree by which they actually change the essence of marriage. That is why I am telling you and advocate strongly for you to not cede the words or you know, to give up ground to allowing them to use the term same-sex marriage so as to speak of an actual marriage. Very quickly, let's look here. The, the president celebrated this decision as a victory for progress and equality, as if the humanist ethic is going somewhere. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the atheist, the humanist, those who do not acknowledge a coming judgment, have no eschatology other than heat death of the universe. When, when the humanist, the one who says that God is no, is no one, that he does not exist— when the atheist asserts that there is no, no deity, there's nothing above us, only sky, there's no heaven, there's no hell, John Lennon's great hymn called Imagine, that idea has no eschatology, it has absolutely no hope. And so for them to use the label progress is essentially an intellectually vapid concept because they're not going anywhere. Everyone will die heat death will occur, the sun will eventually run out of energy, the earth will crash into this solar system as everything collapses, because there's no end of an age for them. And so they see progress as just the collective happenings on this planet for a few more thousand years or million years before the sun runs out of speed and energy. It's, it's not a real idea. And you have to challenge these presuppositional foundations of terms. And that's why I think the battle over the words is so important. This is what President Obama commissioned his staff to do to the White House, to utilize the flag of, of God's forgiveness, the symbol by which God demonstrates to the people of the earth that he will never again judge the earth by a total flood. They take that symbol, which is supposed to remind God of his covenant to not destroy the nations, and they defiantly stick it up in front of his face, and they say, we will not have your ways. This is what the homosexual agenda attempts to do. This is a hijacking of terms, a hijacking of symbols, and we're going to turn our attention to that 
in just a minute. Isaiah records a very similar time to this in the life of Israel when she openly defies God and falls under false judgment. For Jerusalem, Isaiah 3, 8 through 9, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. They're not just living out their own religion. They're not just turning aside to their own thing. It's against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. God is judging Jerusalem for not hiding their sin. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that it's better for you to hide in shame from Yahweh, but rather it should be the natural response because your conscience knows that you are violating God's law. God judges Jerusalem because they proclaim their sin like Sodom. What happened in Sodom? Maybe you haven't heard the story. Abraham and Lot are two men. God has invested a covenant on Abraham, and Lot is his nephew. It's the, his brother or, uh, or sister's son, and I forget exactly who. Lot decides, I'm going to go live in Sodom. And as he goes there, there's this commentary given to us that Sodom was a city known for the wickedness among its men. Lot is visited by two angels who come and wish to stay in his house. When they arrive at the city, Lot tells these angels, do not go to the city center. Don't go to the public square, but rather come and stay at my house. Why does Lot insist that they do this? Because he knows the reputation of their city. All It says that all the men of the city, young and old, surround Lot's house, and they are pressing in on the doors. They're beating down the walls, telling Lot, who are these men who, gave, who came to you? Send them out here so that we may know them. No, he, they're not talking about getting to know them. They're not talking about following them on Twitter. They're asking, these men of the city are asking for Lot to give up these visitors to his home so that they would rape them. Lot tells the people of the city, brothers, do not act so wickedly so as to want to do this. He says their their desire, which they're not hiding, they're not repenting of, is wickedness. Do not act so wickedly as to want to do this. And then Lot does the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. He says, Take my daughters. Now, just because the Bible records something doesn't mean it's advocating for that. Shame on Lot. He gives up his daughters and they kill them. And so these angels basically tell Lot, Sodom's destroyed. It's it's as good as as dead. You need to run as fast as you can. And they escape. But Lot's wife, upon the escape from the city, turns back and looks at Sodom as if there's something still to gain from the city, as if there's any hope of saving it. Sodom became a byword for the sin which her men committed and did not repent of, and God is saying that Jerusalem has become like Sodom, they do not hide it. That is the essence of unrepentant sin that's approved of at a community level, at a society level, sin which should be hidden, sin which should be repented of, they do not hide it. And so God is judging Jerusalem for this. These sins that she's practicing are much more than just homosexuality. It's much more than just one particular issue, but God is saying that Sodom, which has become a byword for 
for the practice that those men did in that city, that becomes the token or the touchstone or the, the, the byword throughout all the rest of the scripture to describe a sin that is unrepented of. Many cynical responses abound in today's culture to this decision, especially in the church. Progressives who aren't in the church or in the church, they see this as a victory for equality or marriage rights or some sort of, they hijack the language of the civil rights movement in order to seemingly justify their cause. Moderates say that this only relates to property rights, and indeed the Obergefell decision was about property rights, but brothers and sisters, this decision has much more implications than just property rights, because property is essentially life, as we're about to see in these four issues. We're going to see how that relates. Ambivalently, some say this changes nothing. It could absolutely not be further than the truth. We're going to look at five areas of life that this is going to change in the next few weeks. But before we look at that, we're going to look at some strategies and tactics of the narrative that is being promoted. The first strategy was for them to get rid of the word sodomy, to refer to Sodom and Gomorrah as identifying their sin, but rather the word gay. And the term gay means lighthearted, carefree, and jubilant or joyous. But brothers and sisters, having met and counseled people who have suffered under the weight of same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior and relations, I can tell you plainly that those who I've met and know from Scripture this to be true, that it is nothing but oppression and death. They use God's rainbow, as we've seen earlier, to mock him, provoking him to jealousy. That rainbow he instituted as a reminder of judgment. It's not just a promise that he won't judge the earth again by water. It's a reminder of what happened. Fundamentally, the move to legalize so-called same-sex marriage attempts to shatter a unified societal vocabulary by which we mean something when we use that term. Again, I'm not saying that the Supreme Court has actually changed the nature of marriage, but rather the Supreme Court decision allowing them to Allow, uh, prohibiting the states from banning same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage, is an attempt to create a societal reality which is baseless and vapid and not in accordance with God's scripture or his order. They wish to subvert the reality of the relationship which they are in, which is nothing more than a mutual bond of unrepentant sin. They wish to have it identified with something good, something that brings a blessing, something that is established by God, and yet we know plainly that it cannot bring about any blessing. At this point, the church is wise to the enemy's schemes. We should be aware of the nature of the battle. The nature of the battle is the gospel in the hearts and minds of people, but in sharing a, a common vocabulary by which we can speak to others and have a, a unified and consistent message we have to define our terms. We absolutely cannot give up this ground. This is highlighted in the service for the holy matrimony found in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and this is not in response to any recent events. This was written in 1559, and this was concerning divorce and those who marry outside the uh, prescribed rules of the church that had set up marriage in a particular way, The minister says to these couples, do you know of any reason why you cannot be joined together? And then 
later on in history, they would actually open up that question to the culture, to the, to the people in attendance. Is anyone here aware why these two cannot be joined together? I'm aware. For be ye well assured, this is 1559. This is, this is so long ago, it's hard to think about how long ago that was. That as so many be coupled together otherwise than God's word does allow, are not joined together by God, neither is their matrimony lawful. This, this is highlighting two essences. They are not joined together by God. It is not a marriage, and it is not lawful. It should not be acknowledged as a marriage among the society, among the common law. Homosexual unions which are expressly forbade God by God's word are not marriages. Let me say that again. Homosexual unions which are expressly forbidden by God's law, they are not marriages. So I would advise you and I would insist strongly that you adopt this idea that it is a sin to, against God and against his holy order to acknowledge them as such. We ought to lovingly refuse to lie to the sinner by pretending to acknowledge something which is not there by using that term, same-sex marriage. We are becoming complicit in a lie. It is not possible for them to be joined together by God, and it is also not possible for any goodness or blessing to come about it. It is not a marriage. It is a union of sin. So let's look at now now that we understand the nature of the battle and the things that are at work in this cultural distinction and, and discussion, rather, let's look at these five areas. The first area I want to look at is the furthering of temptation. This decision will further temptation for people who are suffering under same-sex attraction. Law, in the way that it's structured, the way that it works, is not simply punitive. It is also instructive. By, by reading the law and understanding the law in a nation, you can get a gauge as to what they prohibit and what they permit. For example, in our country, we know that our country is okay with murder because for 40 years, almost, we have had legal rights, so, so to speak, in the Roe v. Wade decision for a mother to end the life of a child in her womb. Think about it. If we are promoting the fact that we found bacteria on some piece of equipment that came back from Mars as life on other planets, what's going on in the womb? Certainly that's not life. That's a fetus. And it's not, you're not killing it. It's an abortion. It's a termination of a pregnancy. We introduce fetal demise is the language they use. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's insane. Law is not simply punitive, but it also is instructive. We read the laws of our land, we see some good things, we see many bad things. But law is not just punitive, it also informs. The legalization of so-called same-sex marriage destroys one aspect. Now, hear me clearly, I'm not saying that those who suffer under same-sex attraction are going to be fully given over to the sin of homosexuality and homosexual behaviors because of this, but I am saying that it is one tiny aspect by which they should have been able to fight and to know not only does God's word prohibit this, but the laws of my land prohibit this. And I want to I say that that's not an assertion that I invented that's something that I saw happening after this decision. Matthew Vines, the author of a book called God and the Gay Christian, arguably the most prominent, visible advocate for allowing uh, homosexual uh, members of churches as well as churches to um, ordain or not ordain homosexual uh, priests and pastors, as well as to solemnize or, or to hold proceedings over same-sex marriages, tweeted this the very same night of the Obergefell ruling. 
It's helpful to know your enemy. I watched this come by and I was terrified. He says on uh, June 26th, when I started at Harvard in 2008, Massachusetts was the only state that had and kept marriage equality, right? We're going we're gonna to guard our minds with the truth here. Now every state has it. Amazing. How did they have it? Because of the Supreme Court. Living in a state with marriage equality transformed my beliefs about who I could become. Wait, I thought you were born gay. <laughs> Transform my beliefs about who I could become and what being gay would mean for my life. Truly, without marriage equality, I don't think I could have ever contemplated whether I might be gay. That is how much marriage matters. He's tipped his hand. Brothers and sisters, I love this person. Matthew Vines is a sinner in need of God's grace. I am not attempting to mock him in any way. But what he has told us about the thinking processes of his heart and his mind, whether when he was struggling with same-sex attraction, there were many telling him, you were born this way, you can't escape it, it doesn't matter what God's word says, it's outmoded, it's outdated, it doesn't apply to you. And he was warring between two opinions, and we did not help him as a society by permitting this in one state and now in every state. Because the state of Massachusetts conspired against God's word, which proscribes, that means rights in such a way as to prohibit, God's word, which proscribes homosexual relations, Matthew, in continuing to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Again, I'm not blaming the law here, but in continuing to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, he gave place to a line of argumentation which said that God's command was not important for today, clearly because we know better now. It's 2008. We're modern. We've, we've got it figured out. Countless others will now be impeded as they struggle against same-sex attraction. Why? Because they see everyone around them giving hearty approval. Romans 1. Woe to us if we should partake in this, for it is a great evil to hinder someone's temptation. This is as bad as putting a drink of alcohol in front of an alcoholic. This is as bad as showing pornography to a child. To go along with this is to further the argumentation, the war that is going on in their heart and in their mind, so as to not give them a tool of God's grace, which is not only his law, but the law of the land. When those laws of the land accord with his law, of course. So let's look at adoption and education. Because homosexual couples are now said to be able to be in a state of marriage, state-run adoption agencies will have no ability to deny placing children at same-sex uh, homes or families so-called families. In the future, faith-based agencies will come under legal proceedings and sanctions should they refuse to acknowledge what isn't there. That is, should they refuse to give up their right to not place children in single-parent homes, that is, only adopting out children to families, husband and wives, they will face legal threat and lawsuits against them because of this ruling. And before you say, well, it shouldn't be the case that the state has these children, I heartily agree but it's the case that they do have these children. And there are real children in adoption agencies who will end up in same-sex couples because of this law. They are, they're real people with names and faces. It's not a theoretical thing. It's happening. And guess what? They will adopt more children than, than natural families because they cannot have any children any other way. There are children who will suffer under the sinful confusion that such an unholy union provides and, and promotes. There are real children who will be affected by this. Now, 
God forbid that we should allow the state to continue to, to decide where these children were. Would that the church was unified in such a wonderful expression of the gospel and Christian harmony that we had faith-based adoption agencies that really promoted the health of these children such that we didn't have to face this reality, but it is a reality, and it's not, it's not a good thing to make the situation worse. Likewise, the, same, the legalization of so-called same-sex marriage will prompt changes in the federal education system. It absolutely will change words that are on the page that are, be ta- that are being taught to children. Indeed, just hours after the decision, again, it's helpful to know your enemy. If you, don't, if you only follow people on Facebook and Twitter that you like, you're, well, you should follow people you don't like as well. The United States Department of Education tipped its hand changing their Facebook profile picture to this. What do you think they're talking about right here? That right there is the Department of Education's normal logo, a graduation cap with the words ED for education, and they have put behind their logo a rainbow. And guess what? They came under a lot of fire for this, but somebody at the U.S. Department of Education did this, and uh, they left it up for quite a while until the voices got loud enough to be angry But surely they don't see any problem with the idea that they should be advocating for this particular thing, and they're the ones who write the textbooks for the public schools, or at least decide about this. So Douglas Wilson, pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, recently advised Christian parents to remove their children from government schools immediately following this ruling, and I quote from his blog, there are two reasons for this step given the extreme court decision. Isn't it funny to use words? If your children remain in government schools, there is now no legal way for them to be taught any normal view of human sexuality. Second, well, he goes on to say, and depend upon it, they will be taught the other kinds. I've heard horror stories about sex education classes for kindergartners and third graders. And second, they will be taught an approach to civics that sees nothing wrong with the Supreme Court's judicial pushk. Pushk is a German word for violent overthrow of a government. It's like the French word coup or a stroke. Coup d'etat is a stroke of state. It's a French term, German, pushk, and it is just as worrisome. So Douglas is saying that, that the idea of jurisprudence, the idea of who has authority to speak on what, should have precluded or prohibited the Supreme Court from being able to speak about this issue. And the approach to civics, which is taught in legal theory and in history that is going to be promoted in public schools, will not see any problem with what has happened. So if you have your kids in public schools and you're a believer, please pull them out. It shouldn't have taken this issue for you to understand that, but God's grace is extremely clear in moments like this. Come out from her. Mark Oppenheimer, bi-weekly editor at the Time magazine, wrote two days after the Supreme Court announcement concerning faith-based organizations in an article titled, Now is the Time to End Tax Exemption for Religious Institutions. He opens with, uh, sorry, this isn't his opening. This is a statement made later on in the article, uh, ran two days after. He says, rather than try to rescue tax-exempt status for organizations that dissent from settled public policy, look at that arrogance. It's not settled. Roe v. Wade isn't settled. We still think it's murder. They call it pro-choice. It's not settled just because it's the law of the land. He says, from 
settled public policy on matters of race or sexuality, we need to make a more radical step. It's time to abolish or greatly diminish the tax-exempt status. The brazen lack of understanding of what taxes are about is amazing to me. The reason for tax exemption on churches is that there should be no taxation without representation. Perhaps you've heard that phrase in a history class. It comes from a great number of dialoguers and thinkers who existed before the American War for Independence, who basically said that England was taxing the colonies, but not allowing her to have any voice in the way that her lands were governed. Because the government makes no law establishing a religion, it has no right to tax the churches. It's not as if the government is subsidizing churches. Ministers already pay tax on their payroll. Ministers already have to buy things personally that get taxed, sales tax, etc., state tax, investment tax. The church is already taxed. The only thing the church is not taxed on is donations that are given to her. But she's not selling a product. She's not giving people a good or a service by which the government should even have authority to touch. Now, again, the current level of taxation is way already above and beyond what is needed for representation, but that doesn't mean we should make it worse. Taxation, tax exemption will be revoked within a generation, I believe. So, Christians, get it in your mind. Your money is still belonging to God. And whether or not you get a tax deduction, your money should be given to the Lord, and it should be used in ways that further his kingdom. And just because you get rid of a tax exemption doesn't mean your money shouldn't go to the church. In subsequent decades, it's very likely that our ability to articulate the gospel, even indeed a recording of this message, will be used as evidence in anti-hate speech proceedings and legislations. Additionally, ministers will be sued. This has already happened in the UK and Canada. They will be sued for refusing to solemnize so-called same-sex weddings. And churches will be sued to have their buildings be used for these proceedings. Both of those types of things have already been prosecuted and successfully, I guess, you know, decided in, in their terms of success in those nations. It will be no different here. These are just leaves of the tree. Now, we've touched on five issues. We've talked, talked about the furthering of temptation, adoption, education, churches and ministers, five issues. Now, I want to talk about why I am not calling for you to go call your congressman. No matter what evils and maladies befall our society after this decision, you should not despair. I think I can probably say quickly or uh, truly that my tone is not conveying woe is us. I'm not getting angry. I'm not getting mad, although godly outrage is righteous. But I'm not losing sleep over this issue, because guess what? The Bible is still true. Jesus is still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He didn't move from his throne when the Supreme Court tried to assert a reality that cannot exist. Jesus is King over Kings, and he will have the victory. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, Daniel 7, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. Christ, having all authority and power in heaven and on earth, is even now crushing all of his enemies under his feet. Though it looks like they are still building the tower, Babel is even now falling. The societal collapse, the, the moral compass collapse, which is taking place now, is happening even though it looks like they're winning. And when I say they, I just mean a world bent on 
not following Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to set up a, an us versus them kind of distinction or discussion. We don't war against flesh and blood. Our calling as disciples is absolutely the same, to love God and to love our neighbor. And in loving God and in loving our neighbor, we must repent of those two sins that I mentioned earlier. It is not right for you to be icked out by a homosexual person in such a way as you think they are beyond repentance. That is a sin, brother and sisters, brothers and sisters. It is a sin for you to avoid homosexual people in such a way as to think that they cannot be worthy of any love or any self-respect or any dignity. Because we believe that human beings are invested with God's image, they have innate worth, even though they be actively rebelling against God in that moment. A person does not have to clean themselves up before they hear the gospel, and we should not be, be uh, strangers to them in such a way as to never associate with them. That's different from letting unrepentant homosexuality reign in the church or be partakers of the members of a, a church. But it is the case that you must repent of your homophobia. And by that, I do not mean that you just have to lovingly accept all behavior and never speak a word of correction, rebuke, or challenge. Because we believe that God's word is life-giving. His commandments were given to Israel so that she would remain in the land, not be expelled. God wasn't attempting to put something on Israel that would burden her. They made the law into a burden. It was God's original intention that by the law, she would be identified as a gem among the darkness of the earth, that she would shine and that the law would go forth from Zion, that all nations would come and stream to the house of God. That was the purpose for giving the law and for God choosing Israel. Accepting and encouraging your neighbor's sin, though, is not love. It is sin. That's true if your neighbor is cheating on his wife and you're hiding it. That's true if your neighbor is using illicit means to gain over others, swindle, to oppressively tax, oppressively collectify, and, and everyone decide we will go take these things by force. Partaking in sin is sin. Permitting sin is sin. And so you should not just, uh, in repenting of your homophobia, think, oh, well, everything's fine we're all good. There's no need for correction or rebuke or any loving witness. Jesus Christ died for these sins, not so that they would permit and persist, but rather that they would be removed. The gospel over and over again is, you were drunkards, thieves, gluttons, swindlers, haters of God. Such were some of you. God saves people like this. It is primarily those people that Christ came for. Jesus Christ, in coming to this earth, said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And so understanding that, we should not react to this decision and think, well, here's a whole other section of society that we can't partake in or touch. It is just as much a sin for you to avoid these sorts of people, even to use those ideas. I don't associate with those sorts of people. It's just as much of a sin as to do that as to be so spineless so as to never love them enough to tell the truth. It is deeply unloving thing for someone in their sin to, to leave someone in their sin and to demonstrate more than hatred, but actual apathy. Think about this for a second. If you're walking down the street and you see a building on fire and you know that in that building, maybe it's a house in your neighborhood, people live there. Maybe perhaps you can see through the windows whether there are people inside or maybe you can't. It would be a most unloving thing 
to not immediately start pounding on the doors, calling the fire department, and making sure that no one is about to perish in that building. And in fact, you can even ask yourself this, would you ever do that? No, obviously you would never do that. Knowing that something is on fire, you would, you would call authorities, you would get help, you would invest time in making sure it's okay. We do the exact same thing when we allow people to just believe that, no, however you're living, it's totally fine. We not only need to repent of our apathy toward the homosexual, but also towards all those who are lost. The church, if we are honest with ourselves, is guilty of apathy concerning the lost. It's not just an issue about homosexuality. And this isn't something that we just say concerning homosexuality. A false understanding of loving our neighbor says, judge not. These are some common objections. But this is a truncated view of what Christ says. He says, condemn not. And he also says, rightly, to judge with right judgment. And that's not with your opinion. It's not because you think homosexuality is icky. It's because God's word says it is destructive to people and causes nations to be expelled from their lands. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all the prophets, according to Jesus Christ, preached with equal vigor to the people of Israel as well as the Pharisees. And at one point, John the Baptist loves his neighbor by calling them a brood of vipers so that they might become aware as to what they have become apart from actually honoring God's law. He tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Telling someone to bear fruit is not hatred, it's love. Christ routinely calls the Pharisees to repentance. This is one of the most amazing things to me. I mean, this to me, people say Jesus loved the sinner. It's easy to love the sinner when you, when you are on a mission of compassion, but it's very clear with a good reading of the Gospels that Jesus is always appealing to the Pharisees, and he's constantly telling them, turn from your wickedness, turn from your hijacking of the law into a, a tradition that that uh, goes against God's law. He's constantly reaching out to those who have hard hearts against God, not just weak and broken people under the weight of sin, but those who are high and lofty in their own estimation. That, to me, is almost a more amazing aspect of Christ's mercy, because that's how I was. I grew up in a pharisaical mindset, thinking myself to be a good person because I went to church. And then later I had a time where I was more like the tax collector and the prostitute. But the point is not that Christ only went for those who were broken. He also went for those who were proud and filled with envy and puffed up. Jesus routinely calls the Pharisees to repentance and routinely calls those who are broken in their sin to repentance. In the case where they bring the woman caught in adultery, Jesus knows the intention of the crowd that if she was caught red-handed, it takes two to tango, and there's only the woman there and the man's nowhere to be seen. He doesn't join in with their condemnation, but rather forgives her and tells her, go and sin no more. It's forgiveness and repentance. Christ loved Chorazin and Bethsaida so much that he pronounced a coming judgment on them and called them to repentance. Perhaps you don't remember the passage, but Jesus says, woe. Not, not like W-O-A-H. He says W-O-E. It's a term you may have not heard very often. He prescribes woe to the people of Bethsaida and Chorazin. He says, if the miracles which were done in you would have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. Jesus Christ loves these cities, these many cultures, enough to speak against them. 
not leaving them in their sin, but warning them of a coming judgment, which I guess is collective because he says Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up at the judgment and condemn you. Christ freely offers himself in the public square, offering himself to be the the water of life by which he would be emotionally, spiritually, life-giving, satisfying to those who are thirsty. He freely offers himself to everyone. He didn't put any conditions on it, but rather he shouts in the public square during the feast, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and let him drink and I will, I will quench his thirst. Jesus offers to be grace, life-giving water for those who are spiritually thirsty and he makes no qualms about it. And he doesn't say, oh, by the way, this isn't for you who are already justified. This isn't for you who are too dirty to touch. He says it's a free offer to everyone. The apostles affirmed the honest, loving rebuke of faith by telling the men of Jerusalem, who were all guilty of calling out against Christ, crucify him, crucify him, that they should flee into Christ and to be saved from a wicked and adulterous generation. In In Acts 2, it's only wicked, but the term is used throughout the Gospels. It's a term that Jesus uses. Likewise, they lovingly preach. Paul, when he's among the Greeks, he he tells them God has a a fixed, a, a particular day by which he will judge all the people of the earth by one man. And of this, he is given a clear and uh, sure sign and confirmation by raising that man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Paul gives a clear warning, and it's right and holy to do that. In our reading today, we learn that Paul has received an an apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name, that is Jesus Christ's name, among the nations. I actually took it out of our reading, but it's earlier in Romans 1, in verse 5. It's a long reading, so I decided to cut it down. But at the beginning of that chapter, he says, I'm writing to the church, but I have an apostolic calling to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Why does he say that? Because Jesus Christ sent out his disciples, and he said to them before they left, he said, go into all the world, make disciples of every nation. Don't just deal with those who are of Israel. And baptize them and bring them into the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe and obey all that I've commanded you. So Paul clearly is getting this idea of how are Christians supposed to witness to the world from Jesus Christ's clear command to the rest of the apostles. That is your command and it's my command. Following their example, we absolutely must live in a similar way. I'm going to give us a few exhortations and charges and then we're going to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. Just as I mentioned that we must repent of our homophobia, we also must repent of our spinelessness. We must acknowledge the plain truth of the gospel that we, you, I, your neighbors, your friends, those who you know to be Christians, we are all, apart from the righteousness of Christ, unable to stand before God on our own merit. We are not seeing the waywardness of our culture and saying, well, that's just the way they are and we're the holy ones. We are sinners saved by grace. The great song that identifies Christians in our country and really throughout the world is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved who? Holy and righteous people? People who were pretty good? People who were kind of okay already? People who had a Judeo-Christian worldview and were you know, moderately well-formed and normal? No, wretches. That's a word that means people who are wastes, people who are, are taking up air, people who are scumbags, who are filthy. A wretch is a terrible, dirty person who's just filled with sin. That's what it means for us to identify with the gospel. Jesus came for the sick. 
we identify as those Christ has rescued from darkness, not those who are holier than these other people and, and able to give a right pronouncement of judgment on them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When we preach the gospel, we are not saying that we are better than them or we are better than those who need to hear the gospel. We are saying we were sinners. What, what is Paul saying when he says, I've been called with an apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith in all the nations? Guess what else Paul said? Paul said he was the chief of sinners. Being a sinner does not mean you don't speak to other sinners about the need for them to repent and find faith in Christ. We absolutely must refuse the strategy of Satan to think of ourselves as better than the homosexual or any other sinner lest you think that this is a soapbox for just one issue, so as to hate and despise them and think that they are beyond repentance. That is what it means to do not condemn. It means to consider others according to the Spirit, according to the way in which Christ might operate in their life, not according to what you see them doing. We must repent of our apathy concerning the lost. I've mentioned this earlier. We must love our neighbors enough to be willing to be risked uh, enough to be willing to be risked to be hated by them. Jesus Christ, in coming to the earth, displayed love, and he displayed and gave warnings of judgment. He also gave warnings to, to come out from the waywardness of Israel and to, to follow after Yahweh. And yet, the most loving person that ever existed, someone who had never sinned against another person, because we know that Christ did never sin, he was killed because they hated him, because he was telling the truth. He says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. And so we must be willing as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as people who are called to proclaim reconciliation and forgiveness through the name of Jesus, we must be willing to risk being hated by those who we actually love. You have to love them, and then you have to be will willing to be hated by them. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's how Jesus walked. We absolutely must pe preach reconciliation with God through the forgiveness brought about by the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not preaching about a societal transformation that attempts to just install a leader or a president or a congressman or a senator apart from any sort of radical transformation in the hearts and minds of people. It is not enough. It was never enough. And we should not trust in chariots and horses, but rather in the name of our God. Does that mean that we attempt to make no issue uh, of righteousness our goal? No. We're called to bring about the obedience of the faith in all the nations. It's decidedly societal and polit political, but it's not instituted by laws. Well, brothers and sisters, we're pretty much at the end here, and I just want to reiterate, do not think the homosexual too far gone that he or she is beyond God's grace. And also, get a spine. I've heard so much babbling on the internet about how we don't need to speak to anyone. Thank God Jesus Christ did not do that to the earth. Think about it. The earth was not clamoring for righteousness. What does John 3 say? It says that Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation because the world was already condemned. If you wait for the homosexual to ask you how you're living or why you're living, guess what? You will wait forever. You're called to go. You're called to be salt. You're called to be light. You're called to love your neighbor, not ignore your neighbor, not be unconcerned with your neighbor. What does the law say? It says, if you see your neighbor's ox 
going off into a pit, you have to rescue it. Surely the scripture says that God is not concerned with oxen, is he? He's concerned with humans, real humans who are really valuable to him. May we be God's mouthpiece in, shedding, in, in spreading abroad the light that we've been given. Again, we must repent of our homophobia, but we also must repent of our spinelessness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, for a great move of repentance on your church. We ask you, Lord, that you would forgive those who have uh, physically attacked uh, homosexuals, taking vengeance into their own hands. Lord, we ask that you would forgive and cause a great wave of repentance to come upon those who call themselves Christians, who are ordaining homosexual priests, permitting homosexual so-called marriages to take place in their churches. Lord, we ask that a great move of, of grace and redemption would take place, and Lord, that you would secure our hearts, that we would realize that following you means that we are giving up all rights in our lives to any sort of property, peace, or security in, in our day. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with grace, that you would make us gracious, that in our relationships with people who are suffering under these temptations, we would not attempt to politicize or browbeat these people into being ashamed of their sin, but that we would lovingly share the gospel, that we would be open to sharing our lives with these these people. And Lord, I, I do also ask that you would give us an understanding of the depth of your love for people, and that through this, Lord, we would actually realize and be even more thankful for the grace we've received, not thinking of ourselves as holy and these other people as, as sinners that can never be redeemed. Lord, I pray that you would give us right understanding that we would be able to judge with right judgment. In your mighty name, amen.